0: This is Get Ready for Sunday, a more or less weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches. Today I'll be talking about the readings for the second Sunday of Lent, March 13, 2022. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I offer this time in hopes of clearing away some of the obstacles of time, translation, cultural differences that can hide some of the deeper insights that Scripture holds. I am using published works of genuine Scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators in this effort, but fair warning, all this good information does get sifted through my own tiny brain. You can find the day's scripture readings on the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. That's U-S-C-C-B dot In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship, and from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. Every year on the second Sunday of Lent, we hear the story of the Transfiguration, It is a familiar story. We celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration every year on August 6th. Each one of the Synoptic Gospel writers records the event. This year, we're hearing primarily from the Gospel of Luke, so it's his account of the story we get this weekend. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that during Lent, all the readings on any Sunday are thematically linked. That means there's no reason to take them out of order for study purposes. So here we go into the first reading. This day it is taken from the book of Genesis. The Lord took Abram outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Just so, he added, shall your descendants be. Abram put his faith in the Lord, who credited it to him, as an act of righteousness. He then said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as a possession. O Lord God, he asked, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He answered him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old she-goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram brought him all these, split them in two, and placed each half opposite the other, but the birds he did not cut up. Birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Abram stayed with them. As the sun was about to set, a trance fell upon Abram, and a deep, terrifying darkness enveloped him. When the sun had set and it was dark, there appeared a smoking firepot and a flaming torch, which passed between those pieces. It was on that occasion that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. The Word of the Lord First of all, Abram sounds a lot like Abraham, doesn't it? Have no fear, there is no need to keep them separate in your mind. It's the same guy, with two different names. Two chapters further into the book, Abram's name will change to Abraham. God does that. In the verses immediately prior to what you just heard, God had promised Abram he would be the progenitor for a vast multitude of descendants. At this point in the story, Abram is about 75 years old, and without a son and heir. Sarah, his wife, is also very old, much past childbearing years. There is not a human physiological explanation of how they could have children at this age, yet Abram put his trust in God. But he also asked God how the promise of descendants would be fulfilled. God takes Abram outside and shows him all the stars and promises him his descendants will be just as numerous. The scripture says, Abram put his faith in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. The term righteousness deserves some attention. I think most of us miss an important part of its meaning. Righteousness is not a quality that can be achieved alone. It can only properly apply in relationship to another or to others. I could say, that guy over there is very muscular. He works out every day. He could possibly have achieved that quality of muscularity all alone. But I cannot correctly say that he is righteous without referring to his behavior toward others. With this declaration of righteousness and its inherent denotation of community, along with the promise of creating an entire nation of descendants. If from time to time you hear heavy breathing or tiny little squeaks in the background, that's Frodo the Golden Retriever trying to get my attention with this declaration of righteousness and its inherent denotation of community. Along with the promises of creating an entire nation of descendants, salvation is moved away from being an expression of individual relationship with God to becoming a communal history of an entire people. God's answer to Abram's question of, how can all these descendants come to be, might be paraphrased as, I'm not going to tell you exactly how, but I will give you my solemn word that it will happen. This is where it helps to know something about the way one expressed the most binding degree of a promise or contract or covenant in that time, in that region. Note that God instructs Abram to gather and sacrifice five different animals, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. This was an established ritual in that time. The two parties to the agreement, the covenant, would then walk between the sacrificed animals as a sign that any party who violated the covenant would be subject to the fate of the dead animals. That is, death. Abram made the sacrifice and stayed to guard the bodies of the animals from carrion eaters an act representing protecting the covenant from external threats. The firepot and torch moving between the animals in the night is representative of God using the familiar ritual to communicate his own commitment to this new covenant. God then showed Abram the land he and his descendants would possess. Its description in Genesis defines the area that is between what is called the Wadi of Egypt and the Euphrates River. Wadi is a word denoting something that I'm familiar with living in the Sonoran Desert. A wadi is a topographical watercourse that is dry other than during times of significant rain. Dry riverbeds and washes abound in our part of the world, too. They often turn into flash flood hazards during heavy rains. Interpretations differ on the exact amount of land promised. Some stay close to the modern boundaries of Israel. Some interpretations take the boundaries of the promised lands into significant portions of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, and Jordan. At the time of this covenant, Abram was already living in Canaan, His father was a priest of the Canaanite gods. The scriptural description of the land includes not just the home of the Canaanites. Nine other peoples or tribes are named who then occupied the territories promised to Abram's descendants. In coming years and centuries, the core of this land would be occupied by the twelve tribes of Israel and include the great holy city of Jerusalem. In that city, King David and his son would build the great temple, God's dwelling place on earth. Jerusalem also became the city where Jesus would fulfill his salvific mission. So already, early in Lent, we are being given a view toward the cross and the self-sacrifice Jesus would make. So when did Abram become Abraham? When he was ninety-nine. Scripture tells us God appeared to him then to make him, as Genesis records, exceedingly fertile and the ancestor of many kings. Although when Abram was 86, he had fathered a son, Ishmael. The boy was the product of his intercourse with Sarah's Egyptian servant, Hagar. There's no drama here. That assignation was Sarah's idea. Sarah had still not born a child for Abram. It was during the encounter when Abram was 99 years old that he became Abraham. Abram means the father is exalted. Abraham carries the additional connotation of the father of many nations. This foretold the birth of his son Isaac, whose mother was Sarah. This happened, according to Genesis, when Abraham was 100 years old. The day's responsorial psalm comes from Psalm 27, one of the psalms traditionally attributed to David. It is a song of an individual expressing confidence and faith in God. It serves as a natural link between the reading we just heard from Genesis and the reading to follow from St. Paul's letter to the Christian community in Philippi. The first words of the fourth stanza express the two visions of faithful Jews and faithful Christians. I shall see the bounty of the Lord in the land of the living. For Abram, Abraham, the land of the living to which he looks forward, is Eretz Israel, that is, the Israel that is to come. The psalm, of course, predates Jesus by centuries. It is easily reinterpreted. For Christians, this land is the commonwealth of heaven, the kingdom of God, of which Paul writes. The tone of the psalm is very personal, as the psalmist uses a first-person voice throughout. The phrase, hide not your face from me, serves as a summary of all the petitions presented here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is my life's refuge. Of whom should I be afraid? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Hear, O Lord, the sound of my call. Have pity on me and answer me. Of you my heart speaks. You my glance seeks the lord is my light and my salvation your presence o lord i seek hide not your face from me do not in anger repel your servant you are my helper cast me not off the lord is my light and my salvation i believe that i shall see the bounty of the lord in the land of the living wait for the lord with courage be stout-hearted And wait for the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Now we come to the reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians. He is writing to the community that he founded in Philippi. I emphasize that he's writing to a community because much of what this letter contains makes no sense unless you are speaking in the context of a community community, 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 Abraham's early encounter with God brought salvation, that is, the restoration of right relationship between humanity and divinity, to the level of community through the establishment of a covenant with the progenitor of the Jewish people. Now, Paul distinguishes those in Christian community from others on the basis of their behavior, their hope for the future and the changed existence each can expect if they but remain firm in their faith. There is community here also in the form of shared citizenship in heaven. With this assertion, Paul might well be referring to the shared pride and status enjoyed by the citizens of Philippi as residents of a Roman colony. The model Paul proposes is communitarian as well. It does start with him but the model is presented, is made presentable by those others already following it. To be a Jew living under Roman occupation in those days called for maintaining community identity through practices not followed by their Gentile neighbors, including abiding by their distinctive moral laws and cultural norms, distinctive dress, restrictions on what and with whom they could eat, and on whom they could marry, for example. I suppose Paul was drawing on that background of shared experience to make his argument about Christian behavior and Christian hope that much more relatable for the Philippians. But, of course, the people to whom Paul wrote were not enjoined to dress differently, but to act differently, to shift their focus from mere physical pleasure and overindulgence toward the anticipated future with Christ. There, God is their stomach, is a placeholder for all manner of physical selfishness, whether it concerns food, sex, possessions, or power. Depending on the Mass you attend this weekend, you might hear a slightly shorter selection, shorter than what I read you here, There is an option for the presider to omit the first three verses. But here is the entire selection of the day, from St. Paul's letter to the Philippines. Join with others in being imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and observe those who thus conduct themselves, according to the model you have in us. For many, as I have often told you, and now tell you, even in tears, conduct themselves as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are occupied with earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we also await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will change our lowly body TO CONFORM WITH HIS GLORIFIED BODY, BY THE POWER THAT ENABLES HIM ALSO TO BRING ALL THINGS INTO SUBJECTION TO HIMSELF. THEREFORE, MY BROTHERS AND SISTERS, WHOM I LOVE AND LONG FOR MY JOY AND CROWN, IN THIS WAY STAND FIRM IN THE LORD. DID YOU CATCH THE CENTRAL PROMISE, COMING FROM THEIR SHARED CITIZENSHIP IN THE KINGDOM? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we also await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will change our lowly body to conform with His glorified body. Just as in today's Gospel, Jesus gives Peter, James, and John a brief glimpse of His divinity, St. Paul tells the Philippians that their own bodies also will be transformed by the power of the resurrected Christ. Paul being Paul adds the reminder that patience and perseverance will be required in the meantime. On to the Gospel. It's Luke's account of the Transfiguration. Here it is. Jesus took Peter, John, and James, and went up the mountain to pray. While he was praying, His face changed in appearance, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep, but becoming fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As they were about to part from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud came and cast a shadow over them, and they became frightened when they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my chosen son. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not at that time tell anyone what they had seen. Right away, we get a serving of one of Luke's favorite points of emphasis. Jesus was in prayer when this began. It would be legitimate, I think, to call prayer the key action in the story. Jesus prays a lot in Luke, more than in the other Gospels. Here, Jesus has a changed appearance when he is so intimately connected to the Father. It seems that the radiance within him won't be, can't be contained, in his normal physical body. But that radiance causes his whole being to put out energy, the light of truth, if you will, in such great intensity that even his clothing appears brilliant white. The transfiguration is an event of great importance within the entire Christian Bible. The story of the Transfiguration occurs in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In each version, the story is given significant attention. It is also alluded to in the fourth Gospel, John's Gospel. St. Peter refers to it in his second epistle. The Catholic Church recognizes the Feast of the Transfiguration on August 6th. The Transfiguration is also now one of the luminous mysteries of the Rosary, introduced in 2002 by St. Pope John Paul II. The Transfiguration is also counted as one of the five major milestones in the life of Jesus, the others being his baptism, crucifixion, resurrection, and Ascension. While the actual location of the mountain on which the Transfiguration took place is unknown, most scholars agree it occurred on Mount Tabor in the region of Galilee, which is located about six miles east of Nazareth and 11 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. Mount Tabor is 1840 feet high. It overlooks the Valley of Jezreel. It served as a boundary point between the ancient tribes of Issachar, Naphtali, and Zebulun. Jesus would have been very familiar with Mount Tabor. In first-century Jewish tradition, mountaintops are places where good things happen, especially when they involve interaction between humanity and divinity. Think about Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, or the theophany that Elijah experienced on the same mountain. Matthew's Jesus will deliver his Sermon on the Mount on a mountain. Jesus grew up within sight of Mount Tabor, and it is the highest peak in the region of Galilee. Jesus began his preaching ministry in this region. Mount Tabor would be the most convenient place for Jesus to provide his inner circle with a proper glimpse of his divinity. That's why most scholars tend to place it on Mount Tabor. It's location, location, location. Seems to me that the laws of real estate also go back, back, back into antiquity. Luke's account of the Transfiguration differs in several ways from the accounts we get from Matthew and Mark. In Luke, Jesus makes the first and second predictions of his passion in the same chapter as the Transfiguration story. The predictions come one before and one after the Transfiguration event, bracketing it. Only Luke says the Transfiguration occurred eight days after Jesus predicted his passion. Only Luke says the event occurred while Jesus was in prayer. But then again, prayer is one of Luke's recurring themes. For Luke, the transfiguration is the beginning of a new creation. In all three synoptics, Moses and Elijah appear and speak with Jesus. However, it is only in Luke that we learn anything about what was said. Luke alone offers that Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus about his exodus, which would be the passage from death to life that Jesus would accomplish in Jerusalem. Several details of the transfiguration recall key moments or key people from the Hebrew Scriptures. The presence of Moses, the great lawgiver who received the Ten Commandments from God on top of Mount Sinai. Moses represents the law. The presence of Elijah, the great prophet, whom many Jewish people believed heralds the coming of the Messiah. Elijah represents the prophets. In first century Jewish apocalyptic thinking, Moses and Elijah were both key figures in the end times. Jesus joins them as the old creation comes to an end, and through him the new creation begins. The old and the new are linked by the person of Jesus. The cloud motif for the presence of God is very prominent in this story. It also runs all the way from Exodus, where it accompanies the Jewish people as they flee Egypt, to Mount Sinai, as Moses is with God, to the Jordan River, where John baptizes Jesus. After Moses spent 40 days with God on Mount Sinai, it was said that in the immediate presence of God's glory, the appearance of Moses changed so dramatically that he had to wear a veil. That, of course, is a prefiguring of the change coming over the face of Jesus and his clothing, taking on such a glorified glow. The transfiguration is a key moment in Jesus's life. There are records of it being celebrated with festivals as early as the 7th century in the Eastern Church. It was in 1457 that Pope Calixtus III fixed the feast day on August 6th for the Western Church. And now, every year on the second Sunday of Lent, we again recall the event. This event gave the disciples a powerful experience of Christ's divinity. It placed Jesus solidly within the tradition of the Jewish people, as he is accompanied by Moses and Elijah. And it is easy to understand why the Church selects this event for Lent. The Transfiguration, again, prefigures the glory of the Resurrection on Easter. The Transfiguration is also one of Jesus' miracles, and is unique among them in that the miracle happens to Jesus rather than to someone else. Just in case those present at the event or those reading or hearing the story later might miss the point about how pivotal the role of Jesus is in human history, we have the voice from the cloud naming him as Beloved Son and issuing one simple command to everyone else, listen to him. That's about enough for this episode. Thanks for clicking in. If you couldn't find last Sunday's episode, you're not alone. I couldn't either. Some cross-country travel got in the way and consumed all the time I would otherwise devote to this project. I'm sorry for any inconvenience or annoyance that might have caused. Rest assured that I've felt guilty about it all week. If you find this time valuable, please let someone else know about it. I pray that your Lent is drawing you closer to Christ. Please pray for everyone who is in ministry, whether ordained, vowed religious, or lay persons. And God bless you.